My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. This is one of our very special Master Locksmith episodes. Whilst the classic format of the Unlock Moment podcast explores a person's life and career journey and dives into their personal moments of clarity, with the Master Locksmith episodes, I invite experts in psychology, leadership, and motivation to bring their ideas and guidance to help you, my listener, to find your own unlock moments. Morag Barrett is one of the top executive coaches in the world. She's a leadership development expert and best-selling author of Cultivate, The Power of Winning Relationships, and The Future Proof Workplace. Her new book on the ally mindset, You, Me, We, Why We All Need a Friend at Work and How to Show Up as One, is coming out this October. Morag is the founder and CEO of Sky Team, a boutique leadership development firm, and has supported more than 15,000 leaders from 20 countries and on four continents achieve outstanding results by improving the effectiveness of their leadership and teams. She herself worked in the finance industry for 15 years. I love talking to coaches who have sat on both sides of the table. Morag was recently selected from more than 16,000 candidates as a top 100 coach by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, recognized as the world's most influential leadership thinker and executive coach. Listen out soon for Marshall himself coming on the Unlock Moment. We're recording in the next couple of weeks. For fun, in addition to her time with her three sons, you'll find Morag playing the bassoon or ballroom dancing. Now that is a passion we share. As my regular listeners will know, I'm a great advocate of the opportunities afforded by the new normal working patterns. More flexible, more agile, more human but I know how much that's challenging our conventional leadership models. I'm looking forward to hearing all about Morag's take on the future-proof workplace. Morag Barrett, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, I'm excited for the conversation, but I'm curious, is it bassoon or ballroom dancing or both at the same time? Oh, very much ballroom dancing. So I'm very retired now, but I started ballroom dancing at the age of four. And alongside my corporate career, I had about a 10-year career with my wife as a professional ballroom dancer, traveling around the world competing. So you Google me and you'll find some interesting... Oh, you in sequins. I look it. Love that. And so I'm amateur and my dancing partner was my son from the age of nine when he wasn't tall enough even to see over my shoulder. And he did a mean tango and could work a room of little old ladies like you couldn't imagine. He tells me he's grown out of it now. The story my mum tells me about when I was first uh, learning to ballroom dance at the age of four is that the, the man that ran the dance school we went to down in Southampton uh, came to my parents and said, your, your son is touching the back of the knee of my wife. And that was because that's how tall I was. That was, that was mm -hmm. where my head was. Um, I wouldn't get away with it these days. So <laughs> yeah, No, slightly different. 
But it's interesting because ballroom dancing, if I just use that as a leap off into leadership, etc., I came to it relatively late in life. I was in, let's see, I would have been in my 40s probably. But as a British woman now living in America, I was having a tough day and the advert came in for Fred Astaire lessons. And somebody had recently just said, you know, you're always walking fast and stomping through the office. So I thought, I'll show them. I'm going to learn how to be elegant. And a number of things happened. Firstly, when we think about leadership, I was the complete novice. And I went in thinking, how hard can it be? It's left, right, left, right, left, right. I went, I had six left feet when I started. And then I moved from that conscious incompetence to where it was effortless. But I had to learn as the female breadwinner in my house, um, as a, a CEO of my own company, as the bossy boots and the assertive one, to let go of control. So learning to give up control, to be led and not lead, to trust my partner implicitly, I never fell, um, and to do all of that at speed in anti-sequins was all out of my comfort zone. And I have learned and grown so much personally and professionally from it. It's exhilarating. Hmm. I, I love it. And in, in, in my book, I wrote, I, I said, in my own coaching, I probably bring more examples from the ballroom dancing world than I do from the boardroom, mm -hmm. because actually it's more about the fundamentals of who you are and how you think and how you lead. Yes. It's so, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much more interesting than boring old MBA management models, all that Definitely. kind of Definitely. I mean, and it's physical, it's mental. I had to learn to get up close to strangers. I had to learn to get up close to strangers, not worry about my feet and make small talk. I mean, all of that. Whilst going backwards in heels. Whilst going backwards in heels, as that famous quote goes. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So here we are in 2022. Uncertainty is all around. Inflation, cost of living crisis, fundamental changes, transforming so many industries. How do you think about high performance leadership in this extraordinary context? What does that look like for you? Now more than ever. High performance leadership happens one conversation and one person at a time. And we were talking in the green room, in my experience, I mean, in banking, for example, I remember being told, oh, it's just business. It's not personal. It's just business. And I call BS on that. It's why I move from numbers into the human element and the leadership programs, the team coaching, the individual coaching that we do. All business is personal. Relationships matter. And they matter even more in times of uncertainty, topsy-turvy, stress and anxiety. So high-performance leaders are the ones who are present in the moment and are focused on their needs and the needs of the person sitting across from them. And was that always apparent to you? Or was there a moment in your own journey where suddenly you sort of woke up to that? Oh, good grief, no. I wish it... I, with hindsight, you know, you get those, the what would you tell your younger self? And I valued being independent, a low maintenance employee, a high quality, high work output employee. Give me the task, I'll go do it. And I was successful. But waiting for others to recognize your value from just the output of the work, the, the stuff you do, is a slow road to inclusion to success to recognition and what I learned was that it's interdependence that is more important than independence and even as a solopreneur 
I'm in, I was when I was still a solopreneur, dependent on others for my success, whether it's word of mouth referrals, um, partners who are helping me on a larger project. And that's, that was the wake up call. That's what moved me from the numbers side to the human side, because in banking, everybody would point fingers and blame politics, silos and turf wars, the infighting that would happen within the bank, within my client companies. And I'm thinking, but this is slowing information down. It is slowing down success. How about we focus on strengthening the independence, understanding the priorities and the workflow? Then we can make informed decisions about trade-offs on finite budget or resources that mean we are successful and better together. And that's the epiphany that brought me to cultivate the power of winning relationships, to starting Sky Team, to the new book, You, Me, We, and why we all need a friend at work and how to show up as one. <laughs> and the whole, this whole narrative that about so people-centered leadership and the importance of understanding your people and thinking of, of them in a, just a very, very different way from how it was you know, years ago is it's everywhere, but actually for a lot of leaders, it's still really hard to make that transition. Why do you think a lot of leaders are finding it difficult to really embrace a different way of leading their teams? Partly because they don't know any different. I mean, there's a number of triggers on that. You mentioned that Dr. Marshall Goldsmith is coming on the show and a good friend and colleague of mine, and he talks about um, the success paradigm. So, you know, I've been promoted because I am a driving, telling the team what to do. I make the decisions and then they go execute. Well, when you have that cause and effect mindset, you're going to keep being the outspoken go first tell. The unintended consequence of that is I, as a team member, don't feel like my opinion matters. I don't feel heard. So I just wait. Then you get frustrated because the team isn't innovating or moving fast enough. And over time, maybe I get frustrated and I leave. So there's this self-fulfilling prophecy that's being created that I know when I was in the bank, for example, and management training, you will have seen it, McGregor's theory and all of this, which was command and control and rooted in the 19th century. I talk about it in the Future Proof Workplace, which may have been, and I'd still question it even now, may have been appropriate back then when you had a semi-illiterate workforce. But now that we are more highly educated. We have technology. We can work independently and are yet connected. It requires a different leadership style, mindset, and approach. But I don't think the how we've taught leadership, other than the school of hard knocks, has adapted to keep up with that. And do you think that there are, there are leaders that can make that transition and leaders that can't? Or do you think everybody can make that transition if they put their mind to it? I think that's it. Leadership is a choice. And it doesn't matter what your title is. There is somebody in your organization, there is somebody in your life and in your social sphere that is looking at you, you the listener, looking at you, me, Morag, looking at you, Gary, and going, God, I wish I was like him. He makes podcasting look so easy. He's got a great radio voice. I wish I could dance like Morag. But we're oblivious to that. And so whether you're just starting out in your career, you've got school friends that are looking at you wishing they had a bit of you. If you are mid-career, you've got peers who are looking at you going, oh, she makes it look effortless. And so leadership is a choice. But if we aren't clear on our own definition of what does it mean to be a high-performing leader, your opening question, 
then how do I know if I'm holding myself to the standard and did I do my best? And tomorrow do I need, or in the next meeting, do I need to turn the dial up or down? Do I need to be more talkative or more listening? Do I need to be more assertive or more curious? And that's the difference that we can all make when we are present, when we're being intentional, and then when we choose to have the courage to do what we know we should do. We share a kind of mentor in the great coach, Dr. Mark Goulston, who recorded an amazing episode on the Unlock Moment a while back, and I encourage the listeners to go and listen to it. And I remember something that he said towards the end of that conversation, which I actually relayed to somebody this week in a, in a coaching conversation, which was about this point. And he said, if you choose to be the way you are as a difficult leader, then I won't coach you. If you're willing to learn to be different, then I will. But I won't coach you if I don't feel I can root for you. And it really stuck with me, this idea that you can, you can see people who are willing to change and they're the people that you want to go with, you want to, you want to follow, you want to connect with. And there are, then there are others who not only lead in a certain way, but are committed to leading that way in a way that, that drives burnout, that drives disengagement of their teams. And I do wonder right now when we're in the middle of the great reset, great resignation, whatever you want to call it, to what extent that is environment and all of this industry change and all of that, and to what extent it is leaders being slow to pick up on the way to be a human leader in 2022. Uh, well, I think it's all of the above. I saw an article today that was quotes going back 100 years, you know, in the newspaper of industry titans complaining about, well, the great unwashed, whoever, our employees, people just don't want to work anymore. And it's the standard refrain, and that comes from a position of arrogance. And in Cultivate, I describe what I call the relationship ecosystem, the idea being that it moves us from finger-pointing and blame to being taking ownership for the health of our professional relationships between individuals and between teams. And there are four relationship dynamics that I describe in the book, the ally, your best friend at work, the person who's got your back, not just a cheerleader, though, because they give you the kick in the pants when you need it and the tough feedback that may knock you down, but they're doing it to build you up. Um, supporters, fair weather friends, great, fun to work with, but when the going gets tough, crickets vanish. Um, rivals, Jekyll and Hyde, when it suits their agenda, they're all for you. When it doesn't, they're against you. So you prepare and over-prepare and get ready for the meeting. And if Gary says this, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be on the offensive or the defensive, but I'm not focused on the business decision at hand. And then the fourth dynamic is the adversary, where it's just continually tense and toxic. But here's what I've learned from working from those, with those thousands of leaders and across industries is, there is I've yet to meet anybody who wakes up in the morning that's saying, can I be seen as an adversary? Can I be called the jerk or the brilliant jerk at work? And it goes back to what you're saying. What happens is it's our misunderstood genius, my desire to get to a quick decision to move the project forward that gets misinterpreted by others and labelled as the adversary or the jerk. Now, whose fault is that? And the key is we tended in the old ways to point blame. In fact, like Mark Goulston talks about, if I'm going to coach you, I want you to take culpable negligence here. We know it's not your intent. You want to be seen as a good human being, to have fun at work, to add value, to create a legacy. 
The how you're doing it, though, is landing poorly. You're not nailing the landing. And as a coach, I can help you to add to your toolkit so you have choices. Because again, in the moment, if I'm being present, I can either ask you, what do you need from me right now, Gary? Is it just to listen? Is it to tell? Is it to solve? Is it to walk alongside you? But if I'm not being present, if I'm not being intentional, I may come at whatever conversation is happening with my usual sledgehammer approach and further reinforce you're a jerk, you're an adversary, and create a bigger divide versus bringing us together and ensuring that we're better together. So there's a lot in there. I'm, I'm talking to leaders all the time at the moment where they can see that the teams around them are not quite gelling together and not quite performing at their best and not quite achieving the culture change that they need for the future. And the, the leaders kind of don't quite know where to start. Sometimes it's like once they've started, I think they could figure out how to progress, but, but they're kind of stuck in these little whirlpool spirals where they get stuck. So when you're seeing these environments where it's, it, it's the leader who's not doing what it takes to start it going, where is a place that people can start to figure out how to get the teams to work more effectively together? So it's, it's interesting. I'll talk, I describe it as the relationship pulse check. It's common sense, but it may as well be rocket science because it's uncommon discipline. And it's three questions, three questions that we're asking them regularly and then pausing long enough for others to answer will help the leaders identify the underlying symptom. And question number one is, what's working? Because you want to keep doing that and do more of it. So let's celebrate, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. What's working? Question number two is, what's not working? And then as a leader, you have to be quiet. You have to resist the urge to defend, to justify, to excuse. You just need to say, what's not working? And then just say, thank you. You don't have to judge it. You don't have to evaluate it. You don't have to tell me I'm wrong. You don't have to tell me. Just say thank you. And then the third question is, so what can I or we or you do in to ensure that we can be more successful together? And then do it. I mean, that's the hard bit. We ask the questions, lots of hot air, so many leaders who will talk about and admire the problems, but not actually do anything to chip away at it or resolve it. So three questions, what's working? What's not working? What's one thing, not a laundry list? What's one thing we can do to move this forward? And that is how do you start to get to it? And I want to call out that thing you said in the middle of there, which was about the silence and listening for long enough for the truth to really come through. Something in there. Literally, I've had a conversation this afternoon. I'm working with an executive leader in, in an organization. And I asked the question, it was, we were talking about a meeting that had members of the executive leadership team and also people at the next level down. And I said, if I were sitting at the side of the room observing this meeting, would I be able to pick out who the executive leaders were? And the answer was some and some. And then I said, and if I could pick them out, what would I notice? And the answer was, it's the person who wasn't talking and listened and then said, a short thing and then shut up. And it's interesting because in this world right now where a lot of people are operating at an even faster 
brain speed than ever before and they still don't know all the answers and it's 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 crisis and panic mode actually that's driving us to the opposite extreme and i see a lot of leaders who in normal circumstances they'd be quite good at silence but right now they're really quite bad at it and i think that it's it's difficult to do that and 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 the power of what you say of of, of asking the right question and then saying nothing at a time of crisis and panic and chaos is such a powerful thing to do because i think that it can slow down the people that you're talking to as well those people in your teams and that's when you start to see the paradigm shifts yeah i'm thinking about that and there's there's two streams that are going through my head one is as an extrovert extroverts silence is a space to be filled i have to talk to think and for introverts, it's an opportunity to gather my thoughts and decide what's worthy of sharing. And as an extrovert, I have had to learn to get comfortable with silence, to even as corny as it sounds, count to five, ideally count to 10, because I count too fast. And my five is a nanosecond that still only allows others to inhale, hear the question, not yet even think about their response, let alone get it out before I filled the air. So as leaders, just having those breakpoints that make us stop can allow someone else to talk. And I'm thinking about leaders of what I've worked with. I think about that coming to mind, Andrew McCauley, he's the CIO at Top Golf right now. And I've worked with him in a corporate role and I've worked alongside him as a client partner. And what I love about him is he's a quiet leader. He commands the room but he allows everybody in the room. He's unflappable. And I, I remember Dark, uh, Mark Goulson talked about unflappability as one of the observable behaviors in his episode. And Andrew personifies that. Hmm. And the other person that came to mind as I was thinking about you and the power of silence is Gary Ridge, who's the um, retired CEO and chairman of WD40 Company. And his focus on having the courage as a leader to say, I don't know. And I think when you talk about how can we learn to be better leaders, you think about our education system in the Western world, certainly growing up in the UK, watching my sons go university here through in the United States. It's all about um, speak first, you know, put your hand up, volunteer. Can you regurgitate the facts? Are you right or wrong in the exam? There is less critical thinking opportunity and then we wonder why leaders follow that pattern for success into the workplace, which is I need to know it all. And if I don't, don't admit it and, you know, control information and, and, and. And that drives the unhealthy behaviors that really do not help us. So leaders need to enjoy silence, whether it's like me, count to 10 before you answer. You don't have to go first. You have to encourage listening like Andrew does and Gary does. But you also have to, as Gary role modeled, be willing to say, I don't know. And then allow others to say, well, I do, or I don't know either. So let's work it out together. One of the most remarkable statistics that I discovered when I was doing research for a recent article was my own background. I, w I went to medical school. And so I looked up how many new words do you learn at medical school across five years? And the answer is 15,000 new words, which is 10 a day for five years. And it felt like that. And I remember getting to the end of medical school and feeling just dramatically overwhelmed by this volume of content. And when you qualify for medical school, you are on the first rung 
a very, very long ladder of continuous knowledge improvement. Of course, that's really important because that's making you a good doctor and able to save lives and all the rest of it. For me and the way my brain worked, I just really struggled with it because I didn't understand enough at the time about how my brain worked, but I figured out over time that I was more a problem solver in uncertainty than I was a problem solver from acquisition of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But what I was thinking about recently was we can measure knowledge because we can write exams and we can say, well, do you know this fact? And we can celebrate it and we do celebrate it. You know, maybe sometimes over-celebrate it. Uh, it's very difficult to measure and celebrate questioning, particularly questioning where there isn't an answer. You know, so asking a great question for which there's a really smart answer, that's one thing. And that is still celebrated in the lecture theatre and the tutorial room. But asking a question to which genuinely we don't know the answer at the moment, and you're still asking that question. So we're starting going into the pandemic right now. How long is it going to last? Nobody knows. Okay, well, we've got to do something with that piece of information. The fact that nobody knows is something that we have to act on. And I remember I started my role at Selfridges Group five weeks before the pandemic hit. And we had that. And we were sitting there going, there is so much that is not known, and yet there are decisions to be made. That I, I find that's what tripping up a lot of leaders at the moment. Agreed. I mean, a lot of it, because we didn't know and they like control. What we had to do was just say, you know what? We're going to make a decision today based on the next two-week window, knowing that we may have to revisit or completely undo it as new information comes to light. But that takes courage. And it takes trust from your team um, to not then think, well, shit, nobody knows what the heck's going on. Oh, and so if you haven't invested in the relationships before a pandemic or a crisis, then it's harder, but it's never too late. But what I also then saw was the mistake that leaders made, and I'm seeing it still playing out with the great resignation, the great realignment, whatever, is we grabbed our bags and we emergency evacuated and went home. Now, my company's been virtual since it started 15 years ago, but I still went through a couch lock or, you know, shock and awe, didn't eat for a week. I actually lost. I got ahead of the COVID curve. But I went through it all because there's a difference between choosing to work from home and having to work from home. And the best leaders were the ones that gave space for, when I was down and my team were optimistic, they gave me the, the reinforcement and vice versa. We needed the space to mentally process it. The second phase of the panic was then, well, the only thing I can control is work. So one of the decisions my team and I made, because I said from the get-go, it's going to be at least two years. So we invested in the lights, camera, and action before everything else sold out. But we were on a steep learning curve to learn how do we move from in-person delivery to virtual delivery. We did it well because our client, we actually doubled in size. Our business grew during the pandemic. And my team and I weathered that roller coaster of emotions, sometimes all on the same day, through that period. But again, the leaders that didn't, that just kept saying, do your job nine to five, be at your desk, get a professional background, forgetting that I'm working in a tiny house with, you know, with a dog and a baby and a somebody else who has to be online and I'm at the kitchen table. When they were just focused on that, you're now creating a wedge. When the only time you come on the Zoom window is to say, so where are you, Morag? How's that project? You aren't taking a few minutes to say, how are you doing? And allowing me to be a human at work you're further creating a wedge. 
So is it any surprise that people are saying, no, I don't want to go and stand on a rainy train platform and commute for an hour and a half? And in fact, leader, why would you want me to? Because most of that hour and a half has actually been given back to you as productivity at my kitchen table. So it's the old mindset that still needs to shift. And I just wrote an article about this, which is, how about treat us as adults? Go back to managing by objectives. Give me the goal. And as long as I'm doing it, does it matter if I'm doing it at 10 o'clock at night or 10 a.m. in the morning? Tell me which meetings I need to be at on camera, you know, Zoom professional, pajamas on the bottom, pretty shirt on the top. And which ones, do, when do we need to try and come together in the office, COVID restrictions allowing? Now, we can still build that sense of team and belonging. Now I feel like somebody cares about me as a human being. Now I feel that I can trust and be trustworthy. But we only do that with a conscious choice, one conversation at a time, which again, if you haven't done it, leaders listening to this, take your next staff meeting, take your next one-on-one to ask the three questions I asked earlier. We've had two years of a pandemic. What's working in terms of our hybrid world? What isn't? And what's one thing we can do? to ensure that we're successful in this environment going forward. It will reap benefits. Do it. So that's beginning the journey of change. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your take on the future-proof workplace. So how do you make that established and sustainable over time? And not just, I can keep it going for three months and then I revert back to the way I was working before. Well, it's checks and balances. Uh, My team this morning gave me a stern talking to, Gary, because I had been on my little hamster wheel and it was running faster and I was sprinting faster and faster and faster and faster and they gave me the wake-up call, stop, stop. So all you can do again today is to plan for the next three months. Focus on what, what needs to get done and how you need to show up as a person at work and in life as a whole between now and the end of 2022. And you know what? 2023 will take care of itself. And when you get to November, then you can start thinking about Q1, Q2 of 2023. And what do you need to keep doing? What do you need to adjust and change? We need to move away from a one-size-fits-all to career, work, and life that is designed to last for 80 or 90 years. That is not the pace of change, personally and professionally, my change, your change. We need to continuous recalibration. That is one of the core tenets of a high-performing leader. And how do you set up a junior member of the team who maybe hasn't built a career and, and you know in, in a workplace, in an office, sitting next to somebody who's shown them the ropes, and they're doing their first roles at their kitchen table in, in this kind of environment, and they're being set, you know, potentially excitingly quite sort of loose targets and you know, and given that ownership. But they don't yet have the skills and the and the habits to be able to do that effectively. So how do you, how do you bring how do you onboard people into the workplace in this new environment effectively? So it's interesting. I was talking to one of my clients. I'm coaching uh, the chief people officer of an organisation, and she realised that 74% of their workforce had onboarded during the pandemic had never been to the office. And so you know when you are trying to bring people back into a 3D environment. In fact, it's not just your new hires. All of us have to be reminded, where are the restrooms? How do you work this coffee machine? What's the code for the printer? So knowing that we are all going back somewhat to being a beginner, I think makes it more of an inclusive experience. 
But also as I think about my son, who's in the basement of my house here on his internship for a company that's 30 miles away, and I think he's been into the office twice, the risk is out of sight and out of mind. So there's a push-pull that can happen here. As leaders, we need to make sure that we are welcoming in the remote folks. And it's too easy to think out of sight, out of mind. To get onto our own hamster wheel, get to the end of the day, oh, I forgot to call Gary. I'll do it tomorrow. And then what happens? Run on my hands. Oh, gosh, I forgot to call Gary again. And then we wonder why turnover in the first few months is so high. Well, it's because Gary didn't feel part of the team. So put it on your calendar, 30 minutes of just ringing people, just sending them the Slack message if they're on a different time zone that says, hey, Gary, I was thinking of you. How's it going? And making sure we're doing it. And then the push bit, you're right. I think about my son is, and the advice I've been giving is, when you're on a meeting with somebody, be courageous. Afterwards, send them a message. Hey, Morag, I saw you in that meeting um, about X, Y, and Z. I'm new here. I would love 15 minutes. Just understand what you do, how you fit into the big picture. And one piece of advice for me as I embark on this career in this new logo. So we have to take ownership. We can't wait for everybody else to do it. And then ultimately decide, is this a place where you are starting to feel included, that you belong, that you have the connections? And if not, go find somewhere else. It's really fun at the moment. I'm, I'm on day nine in a new role in a startup of 30 people. And I'm having to think about these things for the first time in a really long time, you know, um, getting myself onboarded, balancing the kind of there's stuff to do on day one, but also I have to figure out where the coffee machine is and keep the bathrooms and all those kinds of things. And, and it's not that I can't, it's just, I feel very out of practice, mm. exactly as you say. And I am having to think more formally and more thoughtfully and, and more rigorously than I, than I would have done because I've been working in such a fluid environment before where I kind of, everything just sort of got figured out somehow. And now I'm sitting there going, no, but I've got members of my team. And I've got people joining the business in, in a month or two's time. And it's really important that they can connect with me before they join. It's really important what happens on day one. And so I, I really like that thing of calling out, you know, put it in your calendar. I wanted to talk about habit formation because, you know, obviously there's things like atomic habits, which has gone massive globally. Um, and myself as a, as a strengths coach, I, I, as part of what I do, you know, I'm, I'm very bought into the kind of like pebbles on a beach, we're all unique. So, so these things are not right for everybody. Certain leadership styles are not right for everybody. Everybody's different. But at the same time, there are certain things, particularly if you're trying to land culture change in a larger organization, where habit formation can be super powerful. So what's your take on the power of habit formation to getting a large group of people to be able to shift their way of leading, shift their way of working? Is, is that an important thing that leaders should be thinking about sort of engendering in people? Or is that something that they should leave people? It's up to them to decide whether they want to go that, that way. What do you think? Uh, all of the above. So again, being British, the accent gives it away. I've spent far too, I've I have come to the conclusion and realisation I spent too much of my life presenting that professional mask. I had everything under control. How could I be an executive coach to you if you knew that my life was also kind of frazzled, et cetera, et cetera? And in the last 10, 15 years, opening up and showing some of those cracks and those vulnerabilities is a new habit that I'm learning. And the more people who understand your strengths, your gaps, what's keeping you up at night, 
the more they're either willing to tell you, hey, you're imagining it, get over it, you're fine, you are a successful businesswoman, um, and or are willing to help you to be successful. And so in my coaching practice, um, I'll adopt from Marshall Goldsmith, the stakeholder-centric approach. So I would sit down with you, Gary, as a coaching client and say, okay, strengths, gaps, let me look at your three scene blah. Great. But everybody says they're an above average driver. So I also want to talk or get quantitative data from your direct reports, your peers up and downstream, other leaders to understand that in that car journey where you think you're an above average driver, uh, do they have the windows rolled down? Are they singing along and having a great time? Or are they holding on for dear life absolutely terrified? And then from that list, when we've worked out that, say, hey, you want to get better at curiosity, asking questions and silence, well, let's get three or five, three to five people who get to see you regularly, who can help hold you accountable to, hey, great job, Gary, you asked powerful questions, or great, you counted to five and let somebody else go first before jumping in. But now you've got those continual feedback loops. Because this goes back to my work in Cultivate, new me, we, we are better together. And when we try to cultivate new habits on our own, think about going to the gym. We suck. But when we've got others who are our gym buddies who are holding us accountable or saying, how was the workout? We're more likely to do it and maintain it. So for me, leadership is a team sport. Life is a team sport. Interdependence. Tell people what you're trying to do, ask for their advice, and enroll them in helping to hold you to your own commitments to be that high-performing leader. So these kind of, these ways of thinking, these approaches are patently sensible, obvious, great things to do with individuals. And if you're deploying that kind of culture shift and leadership shift across an organization, at some point, someone's going to go, you know, there's some costs to here in terms of, you know, potentially coaches supporting or whatever it is. Um, how do I measure whether this is having impact, not for the individual, but for an organization that they're starting to shift their leadership style, their leadership culture? So what do you say to organizations when the CFO turns around and says, how do I know whether it's working and how do I know that it's making the business fundamentally perform better? Because you'll see all of the results go up. I mean, there are lead and lag measures here that will come from this. I've seen it transform teams. I was brought in to work with a technology team that were six months behind, finger pointing and blame. Millions and months and years had been invested in this product and a competitor had come to the market just before them. And when we looked at it, it wasn't that the product wasn't groundbreaking. It was. It wasn't um, that the systems and technology that they were using to build it wasn't leading edge it was what held them back every time was the lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities the egos in the room the internal politics so if we aren't focusing on these soft skills for which you are not going to get a one-to-one -one correlation immediately then i guarantee you're never going to get to the dollars the pounds whatever it is the measure the metric measures of success that you're looking for but you'll get in every other way because you'll have a ready, steady uh, line of talent wanting to join your company, even with exit data, because you'll still have turnover, but you'll have people leaving saying, oh, my God, you need to go there because, look, this is what's accelerated my career and allowed me to take the leap to the next thing versus, oh, my God, don't go there. I'm leaving because there was no career progression. Every time we make an investment in somebody, when we help them to reach their potential, when we tap into the hidden talents, we all win. 
But when we keep people boxed in to you have to do it this way, you have to do it nine to five, we limit the possibilities. You've given us so many amazing gems, ideas and thoughts and lots of different aspects of leadership, lots of different contexts. If you could pick just one thing to change in the way leaders are leading here in 2022 that you think would have the most impact, what would be one thing that you'd say, I change that, or I get people to change that? I want them to embrace the human element from two sides. One is the courage and vulnerability, and this is part of the ally mindset I talk about in You, Me, We, the courage and vulnerability to ask for help and take it when it's offered. The courage and vulnerability to say, I don't have all the answers and I need you on my team or in my corner and I can be there for you too. So that's the first, that's the personal bit. And then the second piece is the outward piece. It's the connection and compassion. The second element of an ally mindset, which is, I also want to understand for you, what are you trying to achieve out of life, out of your career, out of your part on this team and what's working and what's not and how can I help? Because it's a two-way, every relationship's two-way. And it's the give and take that Adam Grant talks about. So if there's one thing that I want people to embrace, the human element, understand what you need it for yourself, but be curious about what others are needing and then find a way to meet each other where we're at. Fantastic. So you've got this book coming out in October. Give us a little little bit of what we're going to get from, from You, Me, We. All right. So You, Me, We, the research and our own research, 20% of people at work say they don't have even just one friend that they can turn to. And if you think about what we've just lived through, we've talked about how it's easy to be a great leader or a great colleague when things are going well. What happens in times of stress and uncertainty and vulnerability? I would hope that we have one friend at work. So in you, me, we, rather than waiting for everyone else to be friends with me, I am providing a language and framework that empowers me to show up as a friend for myself, not a doormat, not a yes person, a, a friend to me, because I can articulate what I am looking for, but a friend to others that makes me the go-to colleague that increases engagement, that increases in innovation, that create, increases creativity. And for everybody listening, I have an offer, which if they go to this URL, skyteam.cloud forward slash unlock, then you can take your own ally mindset profile and find out of the five practices, where might you need to turn the dial up or turn the dial down so that you can be intentional about how you're showing up and create a leadership uh, reputation and a leadership impact that you and others can be proud of. Sounds really exciting. Where can people find out more about you and the work you're doing? So you can find us at skyteam, S-K-Y-E, team.com. That's the website. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I will reply if you send me a message. And of course, just check out the book, You, Me, We, Why We All Need a Friend at Work and How to Show Up as One. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. Today's master locksmith, Morag Barrett, is one of the world's top executive coaches and an expert on leadership development for a future-proof workplace. Her simple wisdom for leaders is so powerful, and hopefully you've heard some ideas that inspire you to think differently 
about how you lead your people, drive engagement, and build amazing teams as we navigate the uncertain world ahead. Morag Barrett, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thanks, Gary. I look forward to seeing you on the dance floor. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.